you're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Hello and welcome to the Manjeet Minhas podcast, a show where we sit down with different entrepreneurs and industry leaders every episode. Today's guest started her entrepreneurial journey in 2006 when she opened up a coffee shop while attending engineering at Queen's University. She then continued her journey, becoming the founder of Evandale Caviar and co-founder of Bytopia and Snapsaves. And finally, that led her to where she is today. Uh, not only a dear friend, but co-founder and president of ClearBrain and a fellow dragon on CBC's Dragon's Den. For the last six years, we actually sat on the show in our seats together when we both started. Michelle Romano, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me, Michelle, uh, today on the podcast. So let's get started with the backstory, who Michelle is, the prairie girl, Michelle Romano. So talk to me about where you were born and where you were raised. Yeah. So I was was born in Calgary. I always find it amazing that all three women on Dragon's Den were all Calgarians. So there, I think there was something in the water that it was just, it felt like a very entrepreneurial place. I spent six years of my childhood in Regina, Saskatchewan, and then moved back to Calgary. My my parents were in the oil and gas industry. And I just thought it was, I got these kind of like the same values you did. Like everyone's super hardworking. Everyone is like there to like get their hands dirty and like build. Like there's kind of this farmer mentality of just like, you got to get up every morning and, and go to work. And so I thought it was an incredible place uh, to, to grow up. My parents weren't entrepreneurs though, which was really interesting, but they encouraged me to kind of take some risks early in my career. They didn't give me a lot of choice of undergrads. I always joke. They told me I could study anything I wanted to, as long as it was engineering. So that was an abundance of choice. Well, and, and you're the oldest. So really like me, right? And so I feel like a lot of the pressure is on the first child and you have three siblings after you. So a lot on the shining star to like set the tone. <laughs> I, I think so. And because we were like three girls and, a, and the boy was nine years later, I think there was just a lot riding on me. I also think that made me like, now that I look back on it, like so strong, right? I was just... I was treated like the the firstborn kid. And so it was like, there was no task that was below me. I was supposed to mow the lawn and I was supposed to do all the things that were like, I don't know, kind of things that guys typically do in the house. So I end up in school for engineering and I'm like, oh man. Did you like engineering? Did you know much about it? Yeah, I, you know, by the end of it, by the end of it, I was like, wow, there's some like really incredible things that you can build as an engineer. And there's some pretty extraordinary impact you can have. And I think... I have always been grateful for like an exceptional amount of fluidity with numbers, which I would have never got if like, because engineering is challenging. Like it's not like the walk in a park. I think that, I mean, this in the nicest possible way, but like business education is like, there's a little bit more common sense to it. Like there's that like third year, (laughs) there's that third year calculus course where you're like, okay, this is getting a little hard. (laughs) You lasted till three. And first year, I would say that <laughs> statics and dynamics put me straight on my face. But I know. So I think that that was probably an important part of both your and my upbringing is that we we were taught at a very early age, we could do hard things. And I think that there is, both entrepreneurship is about this exceptional amount of like, like the pain threshold of just, you got to keep going when things feel really hard but also risk-taking, which I think often lacks in women as well, is, is, is women have a desire to be perfect. 
versus getting things done and being risky. And so I think both going into engineering, which I don't think I was, I was perfectly suited for, but I kind of grinded it out and I got to figure out that I was, I wanted to build businesses. And so on the side, I built this little sustainable coffee shop. I mean, this is of course what you do at 17 years old is the bleeding heart environmentalist. (laughs) See if you can build a cafe that's totally sustainable. And I remember opening it up in my fourth year and it was like, I kind of caught the business bug. I was like, oh, I want to do this again. And so that's where it all kind of started. And so why coffee? Like, why did you think that it would be something that actually would be successful, that you were interested in, that you could make a change in what already existed? So it was just like, could we take a business that was high margin and actually make it sustainable? I think it was the opportunity. It was like, there was some space on campus that we could really uh, build on. And of course, universities have agreements with providers and we convince them to like take on a student project. It's still, the team is still there 13 years later, which I think is still a really great, uh, which is a really great story. And then for me, I was like, okay, I want to do this again. And so that's when I met Anatoly, who is my first business partner. And we just started brainstorming ideas. Like we were just like, what's the next million dollar idea? And we went through so many different things that were completely out there until figuring out that like worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95%. (laughs) So most people would just figure this out and they'd be like, oh, that's like an interesting fact. We were like, huh, I wonder (laughs) if there's something here. And this is the part Mm. that people miss is like, I had never like eaten caviar. I'd never gone fishing before. Like I was like, my parents were part of this industry. I was like, we're just going to figure this out. With enough like research and grit, we kind of built a business plan. We won you know, some money at business plan competitions. And I think probably the most pivotal moment of my career was actually graduating and going to build it versus taking a job, which you and I share this moment of like leaving school and being like, like what gave you that moment where you're like, I'm just going to build a business? Well, funny, I thought you were going to say I drank a lot of coffee. So I thought I'd make my own. I drank a lot of beer and vodka. So I thought that I was doing engineering to get through exactly. it. And so we thought, hey, you know, it's, but, you know, kind of like, I feel like that's interesting where our stories kind of are different is that I knew a lot about liquor because after the oil patch, my parents owned liquor stores and I was there all the time and selling it, but I knew a lot about it. That risk-taking was not as big of a leap for me to get into something completely new. Uh, Whereas in your case, coffee and caviar, which I think is really interesting to know that that, like you don't have to be, goes against that norm and that myth that we're really told a lot, that you have to be really passionate and really love something and know it inside out before you take the leap of being an entrepreneur in that field. But I really do believe, and I think over the last year, even so many of us can say that we've learned and done things that we never knew anything about. My case too, like I never knew anything about hand sanitizer. I never knew anything about podcasting. Like the list goes on and on in the, in the last year of the things that many people have tried that they didn't have a background in. And so I think that your story is really unique in that way that, that you jumped from coffee and caviar to a tech business, which was Bytopia and SnapSaves. So I spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about where you want to be. And I think in, in my career, it was certainly useful at many points to have this naivety around how simple something should be and looking at it from the outside saying like, well, there's got to be a better way. 
and not knowing just how complicated. And I'll take you through a little bit of the ClearBank story, but that was so much of what happened there. And, and I like what you said about, do you need a passion or not? I think we sometimes over-index for passion a little bit more because people would just be like, you get all the, all the people who are like, I want to run a great fashion business. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with a fashion business, but in a highly competitive space, you need a lot more than just passion to create real differentiation. And so I, I try and think about that a lot. And so anyway, how did, how did we get into e-commerce? Well, so we moved out to New Brunswick. We actually built this fishery, which is everything it sounds like. Boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish. I still can't believe I did this. And we had no problem selling the product because we would just cold call chefs and they weren't able to get it anywhere else. But we did go into a massive recession in 2008. And I found myself selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. I mean, this is the time you want to be selling beer, not caviar. <laughs> And so you were doing much better in 2008 than I was. I tried a bunch. This is the big myth is like, people are like, oh, well, these, these, these dragons, they were so successful along the way. It's like, man, 80% of the time I felt like I was failing, like just trying new things, new, new product lines. And you're like, oh my God, this isn't working. And so we tried a bunch of businesses. None of them worked. I ended up taking a job at a big retailer, seeing e-commerce blow up. And then sitting back down with the same two guys that I started the fishing business with. And I was like, okay, we got to start another company. E-commerce is doing well. I don't even know if I had a thesis that this would be a 10-year trend. But we, we figured we would just start. And you're 100% right. We, like, I had my engineering degree, which was unfortunately in civil engineering. So that did not mean I knew a lot about building websites or comp sci. <laughs> and we just put it together. And no one would give us capital for the first five years of this business. We just had to continue to keep investing in our own customer acquisition and growing every single day. And it's been a crazy story. Like now, Bytopia is part of Emerge, which is publicly traded. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of crazy for this idea that was just really something that we, that we came up with in a coffee shop. And we started with the last $15,000 that was left in our caviar bank account. <laughs> I love how you've tried so many new things and you have this like unbreakable spirit to say that it didn't work. I'm going to move on. Do you think that some of that is like your values or do you think it was some being young and you don't feel like you have all this pressure and responsibility to be successful? I feel like it's very different um, now that I just turned 40 and have kids and like just you feel older than I did when I was 19 as to what I was willing to try and willing to risk take. However, you know, you, you how do you think that, that where, did the, where does that come from? It's really interesting. So I think I always advise people to start young like we did. I certainly think that when you can live off ramen noodles. You actually do live off ramen noodles. <laughs> and you, and you, you build and you take those risks. And I think we still think a lot about how to take, how to really swing for the fences because it becomes very easy to say, well, I've made it a little bit or this is good enough or, or we can exit at this point. And how do you keep... And I literally like, I try and take risks in my personal life, you know, because of that. I'm like, okay, well, I still get on a motorcycle. Well, I still do these other things. And it's like, because... As you get more and more successful, it's actually much easier to take fewer and fewer risks because there is something to lose that there was never there to lose before. I mean, it was like you and your RAV4 and me and my old Toyota Camry. Like It was like we didn't have very much to lose in those early days. And now there's both reputational risk. But I think that great, I think that great founders are constantly taking risks. 
And, and so uh, do you yeah. take risk betting it all and not being fearful of uh, losing it all? And, and that being, like you say, reputationally, financially, do you do, does that bother you? Does it keep you up at night when you are trying new things? Or even when you started ClearBank a couple of years ago by risking it all, everything you had made and done up until that point? Yeah. I mean, I would be completely lying if it wasn't incredibly scary, right? The safer choice is to like start a business to, to build something up and then to continue not rock the boat as, as much. And so ClearBank was like a pretty scary experience because what I had experienced in my career is that it was really hard to raise capital. Right. There was basically shows like Dragon's Dead, which actually really illustrate how hard it is to raise capital. There was a small amount of venture capital available. Bank financing was typically terrible because mm-hmm. it all took personal guarantees. So you were putting up all of your assets and your home on the line. Andrew and I were like, well, there's got to be a, a better way. So the first risk I took is, is Andrew came home from, from work and he's like, look, I'm, I'm leaving NIMI. And he's like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, oh, well, we're going to start a company. <laughs> so that was pretty risky. <laughs> that uh, I think about that now and I'm like, I don't really know what I was thinking. Uh, it turned out really well. And then... From there, it was the first couple of years of a new startup are really messy. You're trying things, they're not working, you can't get critical traction. And you're right, lots of people are are watching us now because we're public figures and it's like people are seeing how the business is doing. And so we figured out this idea that founders were just using capital that was way too expensive, which was largely venture capital to buy their ads and to buy their inventory. We said we could do that for way cheaper on a rev share. We just charge a 6% flat fee. But it took, here's the big part is, is people always skip to the end, but it really did take like three, four years of iteration. And mm-hmm. during that period, there was a lot of part of me that was like, well, I should have just stayed running the e-commerce store. I should have just like invested. I could have done things so much differently, but I'm happy we did. I mean, we've now invested $2 billion it's in incredible. nearly five different companies. I mean, it's incredible. Like you think of like a big Silicon Valley venture fund, mm-hmm. the billion dollar fund that they invest over eight years. Like I never imagined that we would be there and be a unicorn. And so like, I'm happy I swung for the fences, right. but if you're ready to do it, you have to be willing to take those risks along the way. And I think it's interesting when I get out of that also is that where you started with the idea of what and why ClearBank was starting is not where it is today. That's okay. Every time I talk to you, I, you're always adding new pieces to it, right? And yeah. discovering whether it be the tool to find out how much you're worth or like, there's just <laughs> always so much great iteration that is continuously happening and innovation. Cause I truly do believe also in the same thing, no matter what you're doing, whether it's a product or in my case, or whether it's a technology company, you constantly have to be innovating and trying something new and creating something new. Otherwise you're going to be left behind. about that that tech the challenges like you you talked about getting started well you know for a lot of um, tech entrepreneurs is funding and so how uniquely you've actually looked at this concept and how challenging it was even for you as a as a successful entrepreneur yeah so the first thing I did is I built on my own experiences and mm-hmm. so this is something where and this is back to your first question. It's, I didn't have experience building a fintech. I didn't have experience in capital markets. My, the, my business has a huge capital markets component because we have to raise this enormous amount of capital to be able to give to founders. Right. But what I did have experience is being the founder myself. Mm-hmm. And I knew how lonely the journey was. I knew how hard it was to get VC. I knew how 
difficult, even if you did get VC. Like, here's the thing is like, it's not just about like getting one deal as a venture capital. Right. Like you need to be running a competitive process. So you need to have a hundred people bidding on your deal to really be getting the terms that you're looking for. And so when I felt scared, I just kept going back to like, I was the customer. What did I need? And what was, and that was the driving force of like driving those iterations that created a lot of innovation. And yeah, lots of products that we built didn't work. <laughs> Some products were, were really successful. Some things were way harder than I ever imagined. I never imagined that the capital markets component would be so difficult. If I had known that, I don't think I would have ever started this business. I mean, it's like the same way that liquor laws and how you can't sell a product and different products, like it's so complicated and it's so big. Being naive is a blessing, I think, when you're an entrepreneur exactly. starting. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that naivety blessing. And, and what we did was genuinely very unique because we were the first people that went to market and we said, look, we will give founders capital with no personal guarantees, with no equity, with no warrants or covenants. So that means that we're taking a lot of risk here. If you don't pay back our capital, we don't, we, we haven't put more debt on the business. That's the difference with that is like, if you don't pay back your loans, you bankrupt your business. Like if you don't pay back clear bank, we don't take your business. And so 250 people on wall street told me I was crazy. Like I think the rudest person was like, ma'am, you don't understand credit. (laughs) (laughs) The slightly more polite ones were like, this is not going to work. And our thesis was that we, we see enough data from these companies and we use enough technology and data science to build on top of this to be able to do this. And it's funny how like what's happened in the last, especially the last four months, like we've started a whole industry. Like now there's the clear bank for Latin America, the clear bank of different countries around the world. Like never in a million years, Manji, did I think that we would not only create a company, but like a category, which hopefully is the net beneficial to founders. And so it goes back to like taking that risk. It's like, I think that there was definitely a point and there were definitely lots of dark days. I mean, the first two years of ClearBank, we worked out of my condo. Like people would show up to my home (laughs) to build this business. Like I was all in on doing this. And I put the the rest of my life largely on hold to build this. Mm -hmm. And so... And that's important, I think also to people to know that the sacrifices, right? That you know, and that you don't know that are going to take place while you're building, or even, even once you think uh, it's been built because it's never ending, right? Uh, never the the sacrifices. And I think that, that there is a, a win, of course, in building a successful company, but it is definitely something that I don't think people go in completely eyes wide open as to the sacrifices that they're going to have to make. Yeah, this is not, I mean, you know this as well as me, this is not a part-time gig, right? <laughs> to put it in the kindest way possible. This is a... So at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible for the fate of your business. And that includes you being responsible for everything that you control and everything you do not control. And you do not control your industry and you do not control your competitors and you have to respond and react. And so you have to become very good at... And that doesn't mean you're neurotic or you're on all the time or you're obsessed with your business. That I think those end, those stories have to end very quickly. But it does mean that when something goes wrong, you don't get your weekend and you don't get your evening and you don't get your vacation. And there is a lot of sacrifices along that way. And so the more you can become okay with, you know, when we don't have anything blowing up and we have a free weekend, we like take the best advantage of that. And I've gotten, you know, used to this lifestyle, but I am very honest that this is not a lifestyle for the faint of heart. This is not a lifestyle that optimizes for balance, but it's an, it's a lifestyle where you get to build 
And that feeling, for me at least, is pretty irreplaceable. And I think you have that same like amount of pride when you build something and it's like, okay, me and me and Ravinder did this together. And there was a lot of people that doubted us along the way. Yeah, still do. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still do. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> well, and, and I think that that's the, that's some of the fire that keeps you going too. Right. And, 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 and that's okay. So what would you say that you've sacrificed by being an entrepreneur and not doing the nine to five and being an engineer? Yeah, I mean, I've sacrificed at this point building a family. That's probably even one of the, the biggest ones is that this is this would be really hard if I was raising kids at the same time. I think I've sacrificed a lot of the time that I would have wanted to spend with my friends and family when when I could have, you know, spent more time with them. I've sacrificed a lot of my health. <laughs> I've had at the beginning of COVID, I think it was the craziest. I really damaged my corneas because I spent way too much time on Zoom and I like started not being able to see my phone. <laughs> you know, there's these moments where you're like, okay, Michelle, work is important, right. but you got to be able to see. So <laughs> you get some of those along the way. And I think I'm aware of that. Right. I think I'm also equally aware of like what I've gained. Like yeah. the family that I don't have outside of work, I have one of the most incredible families inside work. I mean, mm-hmm. I get to work with my partner who is an incredible co-founder and we get to do work that we like love to do together. Like we have executives who are like our closest friends and we get to spend all this time building with them. And so there's, there's this remarkable amount of joy that mm-hmm. goes into that, especially I think as our lives were so so dark last year, right? There wasn't the same level of vacations and recreation and all the stuff. And so if work wasn't giving you some level of joy, right? I found it hard to find it in other places. <laughs> yeah. And I love that also you, like you say, you, you become more spontaneous, which I think is a real great thing too, because so much of our lives as entrepreneurs are structured and it's nice to be able to actually get uncomfortable and be spontaneous to say, okay, like the weather is nice or I've got a free morning or day or or, and, and what am I going to do with it? What am I going to discover about myself during this, during the couple hours that I, I might have to myself, which I think is, is something that, that it shouldn't be taken for granted either to have that guts, but to say, I'm going to be spontaneous because we get so used to just being in a structured, planned, scheduled life just as individuals. I think that that's really, you're really great at that. <laughs> and I can't say that I am. <laughs> I, well, I've, I've also like, it's been forced into me and I had people and it's, there's so much joy that comes from adventure. Some, someone gave me a definition of happiness that it's both like aerobics. You have to be like doing something and it's like new. Mm-hmm. And this idea of like not expecting something can just be an enormous, uh, an enormous source of joy. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad you true. Yeah, I like that. I like that definition. So you you, you touched base quickly on Andrew and your co-founder and your partner. So tell me over the years through all your businesses, how you've chosen your partners. Because for me, my partner's only been my brother. So I haven't really chosen him, I would say. He's always just been there. Because you know, you hear a lot of stories and, and, and businesses collapsing because of bad partnerships. And so how have you chosen, uh, you know, the right partners and, and consciously done that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would describe a business partner as like a marriage with no sex. (laughs) (laughs) You are financially tied. Your futures are financially tied. These are very difficult to unwind. And there is like no romantic component often. (laughs) 
So you are a hundred percent right that choosing these are are very difficult. I take a, a much more practical approach, which is that people, and you've heard this, I'm sure, tons of times. It's like, don't work with your, don't work with your partner, don't work with your family, don't work with this. You have to work with someone. Like people somehow forget that is like these are and and even though we glorify entrepreneurs and and CEOs and leaders, companies are not built by one person. They are built by teams. Completely. And and this is where I think we just kind of make this mistake in society is that you need to find someone who has similar values that wants to work as hard as you. And even if they don't have the exact same reasons why they want the win, I've found that that matters a lot less. Hmm. But you got to be kind of aligned on how you run the business and you got to be kind of aligned on on what you want the outcome to be. And then honestly, I think a little bit like you, I just got a little bit lucky. Like I found Anatoly an undergrad and he found me in a library and was like, we should do this business plan competition together. And we, I mean we didn't have a shareholders agreement for the first nine years. Every lawyer would be like, you were, you were crazy. <laughs> but we were like, oh, we, we started with kind of nothing. We divided a company in, a, in thirds because me, Ryan and Tolly, and there seemed no other logical way to divide a company. We never screwed each other over. And we just like worked our asses off to do that. And, and with Andrew, it's been, it's been an honestly like, it's hard, but it's been an awesome experience because one of the things that you don't see often with your partner, I think we're seeing it more during COVID is like how incredible your partner can be at work, which is so much of like our beings. And so when you see your partner, like crush it in a meeting or like build something amazing, there's like a lot of just respect that goes into building that. Probably the last thing I would say on co-founders is that you have to be prepared that there are things that co-founders always will not fight, maybe fight is the wrong word, will always negotiate about. And so if you are not constantly talking about, I don't know, how to price your product, that's a, that's a fight you're always going to have as co-founders. If you're not talking about who, who in your company needs to be promoted versus needs to go, where is your performance management? Those are very common things that you're kind of talking with co-founders about. And so I think because I had a co-founder that wasn't a romantic partner for the first 10 years of my career, my brain had just really much bifurcated, like, these are just kind of work fights that are pretty normal, <laughs> just depending on who you're working with versus this is when things get very personal. And uh, I think that was very, very helpful because I've never met a set of co-founders that just perfectly get along. And I, and I think that the, the, the push and pull between Andrew and I, I mean, we joke all the time, if I had built this company, it would be half the size. And if Andrew built this company alone, the company would have gone bankrupt 55 times. <laughs> And so, but we're very respectful of that. And so that, that meant that together, all of those little, all of those little discussions, and we talk about it as like, you know, I'll start off with position A and he'll start off with position B. And when we really talk and get to the bottom of it, we always come to like a, a totally new thing. It's like position C. And that's where we think the, the real winning uh, is able to happen. And do you find that you guys have the same kind of skills and the same talents as far as what you're good at in the company? Or do you find that you complement each other or are you completely different? Therefore, you can handle different parts of it that all eventually come together. Yeah, there's there's some things that we're both very good at. I mean, we're both good at pitching and good at telling story and good at that, that part of the business. Mm-hmm. 
Then there's parts where like I can be much more operationally efficient and so can deal a lot more with our go-to-market team and our sales team and how to build efficiencies. He's like incredible on like the partnership side. Like, And then here's actually the biggest thing, Maggie. We've just had to operate with no ego because you have so many things to do in a company. Sometimes when it's just not working and you're doing it, you're like, hey, can you just help me do this? And if you can see if a new set of eyes, but it takes no ego to do that because the conventional thing is you're like, just let me fix this. And, And that has been like a key part of especially between co-founders where you get success is where you don't care. And I mean, I, I don't know. I would imagine, like you tell me, that must be the same with you and Ravinder. Like as siblings, it's not about who wins. It's about the company winning. Very true. Yeah, I, I think that's gold. You definitely have to take the ego out of it, which is not always easy, but not you do. All. You do have to know when, okay, like I've had enough or you need a sounding board or somebody can do this better or like you just have some learnings to, to figure it out. And I, I do agree with you. And in our case, yeah, we thought we were really good at a lot of the same things. And sure, there's a couple things, but we are very good at very different things too, which in the end really mesh together well. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that communication piece has been really the key to our success that we're constantly talking, whether it's good or bad, like about just what's happening in order to what decisions we're making that will affect the company and others and, and everything else. Because I truly believe that when you bottle it up, like more, more minds are better and more voices are better at any decision just to get different perspectives, even though a lot of the time, like they're aligned, but they're still different. And I think that that's really, uh, the, the, you have to have that openness that you say, okay, I can say this and not yeah. like be criticized and like take it hard. My worst trait is defensibility. Yes. I've worked very difficult, very hard on my own personality on being less defensive. Oh, me too. Oh, I am so... (laughs) I like, I will defend myself. And it's like, no, Michelle, that's not, that's not how great partnerships work. Great partnerships work on responsibility. And even if you had nothing to do with it, taking responsibility allows you to move on. This was such an unlock for me that took me well into my thirties to learn because there's this natural, I think it's like also like this protective part about being a woman and feeling like you need to defend yourself. I have no idea where it came from, but I knew that I had to work really hard and it, and it totally changed. If you want to end a fight early, you, you take responsibility, you apologize genuinely and you move on and it builds such better relationships. Yeah, agreed. I, I'm not good at the apologizing part. I'm, good at that. <laughs> I'm still working on that part. Um, but I can say like being open to saying that was wrong or like like getting yeah. that constructive criticism, and but getting it from somebody that you respect, that you know, is like uh, saying something from the right place, even though it might not come out like that sometimes is important. Uh-huh. But yeah, that that's a tough one. But I do agree with you in that Without saying it, I'm one of those people who will overthink it and bottle it up, but I just need to spit yeah. it out a lot of times in order to move on, um, yeah. which I think is, 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 might be part of being a woman. I don't know. But it definitely is, is the way that I deal with uh, conflict and or big decisions that I'm not happy with or convinced of that didn't go you know, the way they should have. And, and, and so I've gotten over that. I told you so. I just say it in different yeah. ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, some of these feel like very big decisions and they, they have huge economic impacts. And so there is like that, that I told you so moment. And I'm like, Michelle, do you want the win? Or do right. you want the team to win? I'm like, okay. Right. Just, 
keep it in check. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. And thank you everybody for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Manjeet Manhas podcast.